Outsiders is made possible by grants from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund at USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, Studio to Be Seattle, and Jim and Beard Falconer of Seattle. A quick content warning, we talk about child sexual abuse in this episode. What was your apartment like? Uh, my apartment was awesome. You know, I had pictures on my walls and a carpet between my toes. And, and I've lost a lot of stuff ever since. Jessica's voice is the first one you heard in this series. She's been homeless for more than two years, and she was one of the first people to move into Olympia's sanctioned tent city, the mitigation site. She arrived with a lot of hope that this was the beginning of the end of her homelessness, that within a year or so, she'd be living in her own apartment again. In order to imagine how Jessica gets out of homelessness, we have to understand how she got into it. But when I ask her about what happened, here's what she says. I lived over at Courtside. Is Courtside an apartment? Uh, Courtside Apartments, yeah. And um, it was around Christmas time, and I hadn't seen my family in 15 years. I just moved back. And um, my little nephew was running around, and the downstairs neighbors didn't like it, complained so much that it made me lose my housing because I was being pulled which way. My uncle committed suicide. I was losing my house. My daughter just got kidnapped from school from my, with my uh, ex-husband, and I didn't know which way to go. And I missed an appointment for housing, and they wouldn't let me appeal it, and I've been on the streets ever since. Yeah, there's a lot there. When you report on homelessness, there's a story you hear again and again. It goes like this. There's a mom or a dad with a home and a job and stable finances, Then something happens, a layoff or a medical bill. It spirals and they get evicted and suddenly they're homeless. It's a story you hear from politicians and some advocates for homeless people. It's their explanation for what's causing homelessness to rise. There's a message in that story. It's that all of us, despite how safe we think we are, are one catastrophe away from homelessness ourselves. I have no doubt that one catastrophe story is real. But it's not a story you hear often in encampments among people who are unsheltered. Those stories sound more like Jessica's, confusing, winding. Stories about death, addiction, families breaking down, people getting lost in the systems that are supposed to help them. In episode two, we heard what it was like to watch homelessness rise in Olympia. We saw homelessness happening to a place, but the seeds of what happened here were growing for years in people's lives. I'm Will James. This is Outsiders. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. In the same way we looked at the roots of homelessness in Olympia, we're going to try and tease out the roots of homelessness in people's stories, starting with Jessica's. I asked for some help with this. Just say who you are real quick. I'm Sydney Brownstone. I'm a reporter on Project Homeless with the Seattle Times. If you had to describe what you've specialized in as a reporter over the years, how would you describe that? I've written a lot about sexual assault over the years. I think it started back when I was a fact checker at Mother Jones. I worked very closely with a reporter who specialized in reporting on PTSD in combat veterans. And so as a fact checker, I found myself talking to veterans. And part of my job was to get them to recount in detail some of the worst things that had ever happened to them. And there's a smart way to do that. 
And then there's a dumb way to do that that totally re-traumatizes people. What have you learned about the right way to talk to someone about some of the worst things that have ever happened to them and the wrong way to do it? Something that I always do is if I have to go into that kind of dark and sticky, traumatic place, I always make sure to bring it back to the present and the future because I think sometimes people can get stuck in those places. And I think we can think of trauma as, as getting stuck in experiences that repeat themselves physiologically over and over again through the course of a person's lifetime. That's why I asked Sydney for help. She's one of the most experienced reporters I know at talking with people about traumatic experiences they went through. And as I've gotten to know Jessica, she's hinted that she went through some really difficult things before she became homeless. She calls them nightmares, but she and I have never really gone into them. Here are some things I do know about Jessica. She's in her 30s. She has native ancestry, but she's not sure about the details, like whether she's an official member of a tribe. Um, I just know that I'm part of the um, Yakima tribe and the Sioux. Am I saying that right? Sioux Indian tribe. Um, My mom belonged to that one, so she's passed away, so I don't know where I fall or anything like that. She grew up here in Olympia, but left for a while before coming back. And I know the story of how Jessica became homeless is complicated and painful, and sometimes she has trouble explaining it. And that's what I tell Sydney. So I'm hoping you might be willing to talk with her and I guess try to figure out if we can zero in on why she's homeless. Yeah. And I think it's important to bring up something that we talked about before where I was a little bit skeptical about doing this because I wasn't sure if you wanted me here just so she could kind of relive her trauma through me. But you made very clear that that's not what we're doing or trying to do. Yeah. We're trying to understand what caused a person's homelessness. And I'm glad you're on board. Sydney and I go out to find Jessica. The mitigation site is a sea of identical tents lined up in rows, surrounded by a chain link fence. Inside each tent is a different story. In one of the middle rows, there's Mark. You always see him around town, decked out from head to toe in Seattle Seahawks gear, the hat, the jersey. And Mark's old brown dog, Bo, is always hobbling around next to him. He's got some separation issues, but... (laughs) Mark's in his 50s. He grew up in the Olympia area. He used to drive a forklift, live with his mom. Then, about 10 years ago, he had a brain aneurysm. But I just remembered my head hurt so bad that I uh, went and got sick. I remember some flashings. Like light? Yeah, like light. Mark's lucky he survived, but the aneurysm caused short-term memory loss that never went away. He stopped working because when his boss would tell him to do something, he'd get sidetracked and forget. He ended up on Social Security Disability. He says he gets less than $750 a month to live on. When his mom moved in with a new boyfriend, Mark was on his own and found the Olympia he grew up in had changed. He realized he could spend every penny of his disability check on rent, and it still wouldn't be enough for an apartment. I see all these high-rises going up, but I don't see anything affordable. I said, this isn't going to be good for us. <laughs> we can't afford on disability. I mean, I'm on a two-year waiting list here, a two-year, I mean, I'm all old lists, <laughs> but what else do you do? Because of Mark's memory issues, he loses a lot of phones. Sometimes he wonders if his number came up on one of those waiting lists for housing, but he had a new phone and missed the call. At first,
first, Mark's story does sound a lot like the one catastrophe story politicians and advocates like to tell. He was working, getting by, then a crisis derailed him through no fault of his own. The difference is, Mark's crisis is permanent. It's a disability. And now he's lost in this gulf between what he gets each month and what it costs to live. And that's not going away. There's a lot of people out here lost in that gulf. A survey of the Olympia area's homeless population found more than 40% report having a permanent disability. What brought you back to Olympia from, from um, Portland? My daughter came down to see me and she told she basically told me, Mom, you're gonna get off the, the meth and you're gonna go stay with grandpa or I'm not I am not gonna talk to you anymore. And I was like, well, up at the front of the tent city, I find a woman in recovery for meth addiction. She managed to get off it for a year and a half after her daughter gave her an ultimatum. She moved into a trailer in a rural area outside Olympia. But then she started fighting with her landlord. She says she's a runner. She runs from stress when she feels overwhelmed. And that's what she did. I ran. That's why I relapsed. She drank one night. She says the next thing she knew, she was high again. She goes to recovery meetings and church. She says she's trying to stay too busy to relapse because out here, she's surrounded by opportunities to get high 24-7. A quarter of people who are homeless in the Olympia area report having a substance use disorder. But county officials say that's almost definitely an undercount. People who work with the homeless population say addiction is a much bigger problem out here than the numbers show. So. I'm trying to place your accent. Antrim County, Northern Ireland. I'm Irish and Russian. Nearby, I meet a guy who says he ran away from a bad environment at home when he was 14 and went to prison for his first felony when he was 19. He says it was for having psychedelic mushrooms. Now he's 40. He says in some ways he's still living down that first mistake. He says his criminal record makes it almost impossible to get work, but he still manages once in a while almost impossible to get work. I mean, it's not impossible, but I mean, like, it's hard trying to live down your past. He's gotten more felonies since that first one. Later, I found out one of them is a recent charge for domestic violence. One analysis by a criminal justice reform group found that if you spend time in prison, you're 10 times more likely to end up homeless, in large part because landlords won't rent to you. Are you from here? No, I'm, I'm from Tacoma. I oh. grew up in Tacoma. I went in foster care. I was in like 47 different houses in the first five years. At the edge of one row of tents, there's a guy who says he spent a lot of his childhood in foster care, dozens of different homes. When he was 14, he was convicted of molesting a younger relative. He's in his mid-20s now and hasn't reoffended, but his name and picture are still on the sex offender registry online. Any prospective landlord or boss can find it by Googling his name. Nearly 10% of this county's registered sex offenders are homeless, largely because of that online registry and restrictions on where they can live. The result is that they disappear into the streets and fail to register, or are simply listed as transient. The guy I'm talking to has been convicted of failing to register at least three times over the years. They've literally been chasing me up and down the Puget Sound. Who's they? Just the, the game. The game. I, I spend some time with a woman who tells me about how mysterious forces are using witchcraft to attack her, 
chasing her from city to city for the past three years. She used to live in a mobile home not far from here, but something happened in court that resulted in her having to leave. She doesn't understand exactly what. She tells me her mom put her on psychiatric medications when she was young, and they numbed her brain, but eventually she woke up. I just know what my story is, and I know what's happening to me. Nearly half of people who are homeless in the Olympia area report having a mental illness. People who work with this population say the stress of homeless life often causes their conditions to worsen, and the longer they're out here, the more they're at risk of deteriorating. Way back in a far corner of the mitigation site is Alan, in the one extra-large tent that fits his six-foot-four frame. My name is Alan, and I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa. Alan spoke with Fiana Davila, editor of Project Homeless at the Seattle Times. So Alan is a man in his early 70s. I am the oldest person in here. That's where everybody comes to me for stuff. He's one of the only folks who's African-American in the mitigation site, the way I should say. Alan presents as African-American, but when you talk to him and dig a little deeper, he says that he has Native American blood, I think possibly some Latino blood, but he says that since people see him as African-American, that's generally how he sees himself. So I went to all white schools. I was the only black kid in my grade, and there was only three black kids in the whole school. He is an interesting character in that he strikes me as, as more um, stable than a lot of the homeless people that I have met in my reporting. He's not struggling with the type of addictions that you often see. He's not struggling with severe mental illness. He's known as kind of a cook chef around the mitigation site. I can cook anything you name. I'm an excellent cook. Everybody in here loves my cooking. He's often making dinner for people. Just in the times that we've met with him, people are constantly stopping by to ask him for something. I apologize. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any coffee or creamer because Christine was asking. Uh, yeah, I do, but I've only got a little bit of creamer left, but I got plenty of sugar, so if you want some of that, I can give you some. It's in a uh, container. You know, Alan was someone who had worked his whole life, lived various places, had some level of stability, and then this night happens six years ago in Tacoma. He's um, hanging out with his nephew, and they are looking for some dancing girls, as he puts it. Some dancing girls? Some dancing girls. It's a polite way to put it. And uh, they encounter a woman who basically says, we can have a, you know, we can have a good time, and then... Um, Something happens that will change his life forever. She kept driving us down to dead ends and everything, and I told her that, uh, hey, this isn't working. Take us back to the motel, and uh, we'll give you 50 bucks. And she whips out this lock and says, each one of you are going to the bank one at a time and draw out money, or I'm going to shoot the other one. And I told her where to stick it. And so she shot me in the head. The bullet hit my ear, and it went in right there. See the little star? Mm-hmm. And it came out over here, and it didn't hit nothing. But 
The doctors did not want to sew it shut. They wanted it to heal from the outside. They told me it was going to drain for a couple of months, so I had to go find a nice, quiet place to live. This is someone who was already dealing in his life with some physical ailments. He has a defibrillator, I believe, in his chest. And so he's dealing with a lot. And after the shooting, it just, you know, those health issues start catching up with him. He struggles to maintain his housing, and that kind of begins the spiral of, of homelessness. I used, had to use all my money to uh, stay in motels. Well, I was on Social Security, getting like under $700 a month, and it really kind of messed my life up. You know, this is someone who I get the impression who really likes to work. 72-year-old or so man talked about wanting to become a Lyft or an Uber or a Postmates-type driver. Wait, so he's looking to go back to work? That's his yes. plan? He said he wants to go back to work. Wow. In his 70s. Mm-hmm. I hurt all the time, whether I'm working or not. So I might as well work, make the money, you know? You mentioned that Alan is someone who has more of a stable foundation and almost seems like he doesn't quite fit in in the unsheltered population. Does his race factor into that at all? You know, it's it's hard to say. Everyone's circumstance is different. But across the country, generally, African-Americans are overrepresented in the homeless population, meaning they are a bigger share of the homeless population than they are of the general population. When I hear that, what I kind of think is that Olympia is a very white city. We should say that. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. a very white city. And some days when I walk around downtown, the only people of color that I see are homeless. You know, that gets back to this issue people have looked at nationally of people of color, particularly African-Americans, have what you can call like network impoverishment because of structural racism in this country. You know, there are so many millions of factors that contribute to this, but they may not have a network of people around them who they can rely on for money or for help. And so that just makes the shoot into poverty that much faster. Yeah, the theory is that if you're poor and white, you're more likely to know someone like a friend or a family member who can save you in an emergency and stop you from falling all the way into homelessness. Maybe lend you a few hundred bucks to fix your car if you need to get to work. But if you're poor and black, it's much more likely everyone you know is also poor. So those unofficial safety nets of friends and family just aren't there. And the reason for that is likely generations of policies that prevented black families from building up wealth. You know, one of the theories is that if you're white, to become homeless, sometimes it seems like things have to be so bad. You have to hit rock bottom to become homeless because there are so many safety nets. Whereas often for people of color, you know, not a lot of terrible crisis things have to happen for you to fall into homelessness. Right, like the the margins are thinner. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think if you asked Alan that, I don't know if he would, you know, necessarily agree that that is anything to do with his homelessness. But, you know, it's sort of this backdrop. I need to say here, there are different manifestations of homelessness. People couch surf with friends and family. They stay in shelters. But the people we're talking about are unsheltered, 
and many are considered chronically homeless. This is the most visible and complex form of homelessness, and the roots of it tend to go farther back in someone's life. Many of the people at the mitigation site can each point to a catastrophe that bent their lives toward homelessness, a gunshot, a relapse, an aneurysm, a mistake half a lifetime ago. But in most cases, there's also a background story, an estranged family, a difficult or traumatic childhood, anxiety or depression, generational poverty, or addiction going back generations. The margin for error was thin long before that catastrophe struck. Sometimes, it can even feel like a life has been bending toward homelessness from the beginning. After the break, we find Jessica. I'm Scott Greenstone. I work with Viana at Project Homeless at the Seattle Times. And our team and the team at KNKX Public Radio have been working on this project for more than a year. We went to homeless camps, spent hours with people, edited and then transcribed the tape, and then went back out and did it again and again. We wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for our readers and listeners who support us. Here's what we're asking you to do. First, rate Outsiders on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find it. You can also subscribe to the Seattle Times and sign up to make a monthly donation to KNKX. You can find links that'll help you do that in the episode description. We really appreciate it. Seattle Times reporter Sydney Brownstone and I find Jessica at Olympia's Day Center, where homeless people congregate during the day. She's outside listening to music on a phone. Right away, she agrees to talk with Sydney. There's a slightly awkward few minutes as we walk around looking for a place to sit. Yeah. We find a bench at the bus station. Sydney and Jessica sit down as buses pull up and drive off around them. I leave them alone to talk. Um, so Jessica, I kind of wanted to start at the very, very beginning. Where I started the conversation was I wanted her to talk a little bit about not just her early childhood, but before that, who her parents were, who her grandparents were. And the reason I wanted her to do that was to get an idea of what kind of home she was born into, because, you know, so much of our lot in life is kind of determined before we even get there. I'm the only child. (laughs) She immediately remembered this time when she was eight years old and her dad took her to the skating rink. When my dad took me to Skateland. (laughs) I want to say that was like 96. Did you have your own skates? No, I had to buy theirs. The old-fashioned brown ones with (laughs) big orange wheels. (laughs) You know, the ace of base. (laughs) They were playing. And we did an all-night skating, and my feet hurt the next morning because I had so many blisters on them. And she just remembers having a great time with her dad, who wasn't always there in her life. And I, I kind of got the feeling that maybe that was the only happy memory she had from her childhood. It was just me and my mom after a while, because my dad decided to do the alcohol more than his family, so... Was there a moment when you sensed that maybe something was was wrong in her past? Yeah, I mean, I expected that there would be something because research has shown, for example, that 
people who experience homelessness have very high numbers of something called adverse childhood experiences. Researchers are looking at this, you know, as a measure of something in your youth. It can be emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse is definitely in there. Neglect occurrences of those are strongly associated with negative outcomes like homelessness. So it wouldn't have been surprising to me if she experienced a couple of those things. But what she described to me was frankly something that I was completely unprepared for. Um, And I'm embarrassed to say that because as a reporter, you're supposed to be more prepared. Early in our conversation, you know, when I was asking about her childhood and trying to get her to describe some of its circumstances, she told me that she didn't have a lot of memories. What was life like with your mom and your dad when they were still living together? Um, Honestly, I can't really tell you that because I've blocked it out. Me being back here has brought back, I don't know if you want to say triggers or memories, but like I go down a certain road and I'm like, oh wow, for some reason this seems really like, I know this place, but I feel like I've never been there before. And I know I had because I grew up in that area. And that was kind of one flag for me because if people experience trauma in their youth, oftentimes they'll block it out. It's called dissociation. So I figured there were some things that maybe she didn't want to talk about, but then... When I was eight, she decided to do this weird thing. I don't know what it is, but I laid down with five different men to pay my mom's bills, and it was okay with her. So that made it pretty rocky between where we were. She just said, very matter-of-factly, that she laid down with five men to help her mom pay her bills. And it wasn't just that. She spent a significant portion of her childhood with her mom and her stepdad, Over the course of the conversation, she started talking about, um, she said her stepdad began raping her when she was four years old. I had no choice. I thought it was okay, you know? I believe he had a big part in all of it. I believe if they weren't together, that I would have never went through those things. What do you think about your mom and your stepdad's relationship? Like, what do you think she saw in him? Um... Probably a free house, drugs. So your, your mom was also houseless for a little bit? Uh, yeah, she was always houseless. We always lived with my grandpa or a family member. Or for a minute we lived on our own, but she couldn't make it all the way completely. So we moved in with my grandpa all the time. Okay. And your mom had substance use issues too? Yeah. What was her? Uh, methamphetamine. Okay. Did it change the way she acted? Completely. A lot of Jessica's memories of being trafficked are connected to this one particular stretch of highway east of Olympia. Uh, The scene changes from a small city to somewhere much more suburban and rural. There are strip malls and churches separated by patches of trees. There's some things out here that terrify me, and I don't think it should. Like like what scares you? Like, um like an old Pacific Highway. I can't go down that without holding my breath without having to scream or my eyes closed because if I open my eyes, I see nothing but nasty old men on top of me. I'm so sorry. It's not, it's not okay. It's not. Well, I, like, mean, I mean, I know it's not okay, but what else can I say, you know? <laughs> yeah. We don't, we don't have to talk about that stuff if you don't want to. No, I, I mean, I, I want to get my story out and maybe it'll help somebody else or, you know, I don't even know if my story will get out. But uh, 
you can't judge a book by its cover because everybody comes with a story and nobody ever stops to think about what their story is, you know? Yeah. When I was 12, I told my friend's mom about it and she called the cops and I was put in foster care. How did you feel about that at the time? I felt free. I was alone, but I was free at the same time. I didn't have to do what I had to do on a daily basis to make it okay at home. So. She stayed in the foster care system for a couple of years and actually went back to go live with her mother. Because she wasn't with my stepdad anymore. And that's the same year, actually, that her mother died of a brain aneurysm. Uh, she died in my arms. <laughs> yeah. I was 14 years old. She died in the bathroom. And Jessica described this moment of, you know, holding her dying mother in the bathroom and also feeling a sense of relief. Like if she, and I really hate to say this, but if my mom hadn't have died when I was 14, I don't know who I'd be, where I'd be, or what I would have become, or even if I'd be alive. After her mom dies, Jessica moves in with her dad in Georgia. Her relationship with her dad deteriorates and she moves to South Carolina. There, she's trying to find her way in the world, and a lot of really significant things happen to her. She enters into what she says is an abusive relationship. She gives a child up for adoption. She meets another man, and that man becomes the father of her daughter. She has a daughter. And then in 2008, I had my daughter. That's a really big moment in Jessica's life. And then in 2012, I moved here. The big event that made Jessica leave South Carolina was the death of her grandfather. Her grandfather is really the one person she really confided in and trusted. Yeah, he was my buddy. So this death is a huge blow and she comes back to Olympia to bury him. And I don't think it was just about burying her grandfather. I think she also wanted to be brave and confront what she'd left. When I left here, the bad things had happened to me, and uh, I feel like I wasn't able to get over them, and now that I'm here, I have to face it, and I feel like this is almost like my nightmare, but I know I have to face it in order to overcome. That's actually the first thing that Jessica ever said to me the day that I met her. What did she say? She said, I grew up here, I left for 15 years, and now I'm back. All my nightmares and everything have happened here, and I've come back to conquer them and succeed and move on. Yeah, which is a really admirable goal, right? Because, you know, something that a lot of traumatized people do is avoid. Avoid, 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 avoid. So actually, like, coming back to the place and and facing her fears may have been a good impulse. But now that she's in Olympia, she's basically confronted by all these memories of things that had happened to her. And on a daily basis, she's trying to deal with that, but also pull herself out of a horrible situation at the same time. How do you deal with the memories of when you were a kid, when when they happen around here? Um, I usually go to sleep (laughs) because I don't want to face them. So you just kind of like shut down, really? She just doesn't have the support to do it. And I think that theme of not having the right support or not having the right intervention can be applied to when she actually got housing. She lived briefly in an apartment that was subsidized with her daughter. 
and she describes this apartment in these wonderful terms. Can you describe that apartment for me? It was awesome. It was a two-bedroom apartment, and we had her decorations everywhere, which was Hawaiian and uh, what was it, Dora the Explorer. And, I mean, it was her castle, her home, so I made it safe, her safe zone for her because I didn't want anything that happened to me to happen to her. I get her up and go to, to the bus stop with her, and I go to her school functions and take cupcakes or whatever up to the school and I lived I lived a pretty good life for two years by myself. But then it gets a little fuzzy. She says that she missed one appointment and she lost her housing. I'm not sure if it was just one appointment, but she said that she has this tendency to kind of shut down and and not deal with things that are happening and it sounds like that tendency to shut down and shut things out kind of happened to her and she lost her housing. My uncle committed suicide, I was losing my kid, I was losing my house, I was being pulled every which way you can imagine, and I missed an appointment for my housing, and that's what happened. I didn't fully hear what the lady said, and I blew the date off pretty much. So after you lost the apartment, where did you go? Um, I went down here, and then I've been in the overnight shelter or just on the side of the road sleeping. We often hear this narrative about homelessness where someone is working and they lose their job or they have one big medical expense that kind of throws them off track and then they fall into the spiral of homelessness. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And for Jessica, she was born into circumstances that severely disadvantaged her from the start. And her formative years taught her that she couldn't really trust anyone. She never really had a safe or stable place to be until for a brief moment she had her daughter and she had a place of her own. And that was actually the exception to the rule. So what happened to your daughter after you lost the apartment? Um, Her dad came and picked her up from school and put the restraining order and stuff on me. So she went right to her dad's house, which was good. Why do you think that was good? Uh, because she wouldn't be out here with me. <laughs> Mommy, I can't hear it. The last time you saw her, what did you do with her? Um, we sat on my couch and we made videos of us singing and eating ice cream. It's not like she lost her footing from a stable environment and fell through the cracks. She came from this background of severe trauma and severe distrust and probably didn't have the tools to navigate in a world that had been so cruel to her. I I beat myself up every day because I feel like I should have done something different. I don't know what it would have been or what it could have been, but once they give you a little bit of hope, they you yank it up and they make you jump, and when you can't reach something, it's not there, you know? There's this idea that there's a population 
of homeless people who are difficult to help, right? They don't accept help. They don't abide by the rules that we ask them to in order to receive help. They get kicked out of shelters. They get kicked out of housing programs. Like Jessica, they might get a subsidized apartment and then not be able to follow the steps needed to keep it. And I wonder how much trauma might play a role in those patterns. Right, it's framed as a choice or like a personality trait. Oh, well, some people are just ungrateful. But the way Jessica herself explained it was that she has trust issues, which is very common in people who have experienced trauma. And and the way she put it is she doesn't know who to trust. So if someone comes to her with a real tangible offer of help, she's going to treat that person the same way as someone who might do her harm. This is one reason why some researchers say that in addition to giving people housing first, you also need to address the problems at the root of their housing instability. And for for someone like Jessica, it's this lifetime of trauma. You know, the way I I think about this too is so much of what we understand about trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder is based on combat veterans. And that's why we have specialized programs for combat veterans. We have specialized treatments. We have specific housing voucher programs. Veteran homelessness has its own dedicated sources of funding. But in general, we don't have those kind of targeted interventions for people who have experienced this kind of trauma, which is different than, you know, one traumatic event or a series of traumatic events over wartime. I I just wonder what Jessica's situation would look like if people like her did have the same kind of army of resources as veterans did. You know, sometimes I wonder... There, there seems to be more research and more resources into certain manifestations of homelessness, certain subgroups like veterans and families and youth homelessness. And if you look at the statistics nationally, we've made a lot more headway with those subpopulations than we have with a lot of others. And so it makes me think of like why that happens and whether we maybe gravitate toward the more straightforwardly sympathetic cases, groups that Jessica does not necessarily fall into. I think you're absolutely onto something. And I also think, you know, with people like Jessica, there's so much concern and outrage over child sexual exploitation. But does that concern extend to what happens to those children when they become adults? If not, why? I think we have to ask ourselves that question. Why not? When we first talked about you interviewing Jessica, you mentioned what you had learned about reporting on people who had experienced trauma and the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. You said one thing you're careful to do is not kind of just take people into the past and then abandon them there and walk away. You try to like bring things back to to the present and the future. But I'm wondering like when someone's homeless and the present isn't necessarily like a place where they can take refuge. Did you find that harder to do with with Jessica? Absolutely. Yeah. My my tactics that I've traditionally used have not worked or did not work because the present in in some ways is just kind of like this last stop on this train of chaos that's been happening for years and years and years and one way that I 
that I kind of tried taking her temperature was I asked her how she felt and she described having this knot in her chest and all I knew is that I just didn't want to leave her with that feeling so we talked for a little bit more and I checked in with her later and she said that wasn't there so that's when I felt like we could disengage but yeah. You can't say like well it was like that in the past and now I'm here right? Yeah it's like it's like things are cyclical like bad things are compounding themselves they keep happening to her One of the first things Jessica ever said to me was that homelessness changes you. She feels it happening to her. Uh, I used to be a very happy, bubbly person, and now I wouldn't care if this whole world was on fire. And I hate the fact that I think like that. In the two years since Jessica lost her apartment and her daughter, she's been sinking deeper into that feeling. But she also says Olympia's decision to open the mitigation site is the first time she felt like things might change, that a path out of this could appear. It's allowed her to imagine a future. If you could describe like your ideal home now, what would it, what would it look like? What would it smell like? Where would it be? <laughs> I don't know where I would be at, but I would just have like a two bedroom house or you know, an apartment or something. And it would just be me and my daughter and I'd have my furniture and my food and my pictures and my animals and my laundry and my washer and dryer. and I'd do it all. Later, we pick up Jessica's story and learn about life and death in Olympia's unsanctioned camps. That's episode four of Outsiders. Outsiders is a collaboration between KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times Project Homeless Team. This episode was reported and written by Sydney Brownstone, Viana Davila, Scott Greenstone, and me, Will James. Our editors are Aaron Hennessy and Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Additional editing by Anna Sussman. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to KNKX's director of content, Matt Martinez, and Adrian Flores, who designed our logo. Special thanks to Arwen Champion Nix. I'm Will James. Thank you for listening.